Welcome to The Loop Podcast. This is your go-to site for all things plastic surgery. Our goal is to bring you hot topics in plastic surgery, focused on education from residency and even throughout your practice. This podcast is not meant to be medical advice. If you have questions regarding your personal experience in plastic surgery, please consult with your personal physician. Now, let's get started with this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Loop. Today's episode is part of our education series. I'm Dr. Morgan Martin. I'm joined today by Dr. Abigail Chaffin from Tulane University. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. So today we're going to talk about abdominal wall reconstruction. But first, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and where are you from originally and where did you train? So I'm a plastic surgeon at Tulane University. I'm an associate professor of surgery there. I'm also the program director of the Tulane University Oshner Clinic Independent Plastic Surgery Residency Program. I initially trained in medical school and general surgery at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, and did my plastic surgery fellowship at Tulane University and stayed there on faculty. Great. Uh, so what made you choose plastic surgery and have any, or, have any of your interests changed over time? I think one of the things that attracted me to plastic surgery and I still enjoy to this day is just the the breadth and diversity of what we do, the flexibility of the different uh, types of plastic surgery and sort of the creativity involved. Great. So one of our goals for this podcast is to highlight diversity. Being a female surgeon, what was it like having kids in your training? Well, I have five kids. I actually had them very shortly thereafter finishing training uh, in my early faculty years. Um, You know, I think it's always a challenge whenever you do have a family. Uh, I'm lucky to have very strong family support with my husband and my in-laws who really helped me out quite a bit. Great. And what are the challenges you face now in practice as both a mother and a surgeon? Well, I think it's, you know, any working mother, you have to decide to prioritize. I'm not sure there's ever work-life balance, but work-life integration, you have to be flexible uh, and maximize the time you do have at both work and home. Great. So that's an incredible story. And I'm glad to hear all about your training and, uh, you know, how you're doing in practice. Um, And I'm glad to have you here today for this discussion. So for those listening, this talk has a supplementary video that can be viewed on our YouTube channel or on our social media pages. Please use your judgment prior to viewing as there may be intraoperative photos. Some in the audience may not want to view these images. All patients consented to the use of photos for these purposes. Now let's get started with today's talk, uh, abdominal wall reconstruction. All right. Well, thank you again, Morgan, for having me. Today, I'd like to uh, talk about a comprehensive review about abdominal wall reconstruction. I'd like to dedicate this talk to my former chief and partner, Dr. R. Edward Newsom at Tulane University. So to start, yeah, you know, abdominal wall reconstruction, there are some names that you definitely should know if, these, if you're doing these type of surgeries. Uh, and many of them will be referenced in this talk. You have Dr. Charles Butler at MD Anderson, Dr. Gregory Demanian at Northwestern, uh, Dr. John Fisher at uh, University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Jeffrey Janis at Ohio State, Dr. Stephen Kovac at University of Pennsylvania, Howard Levinson at Duke University. Uh, and then also Yuri Davitsky and Michael Rosen at Columbia University and Cleveland Clinic 
Um, you can see here uh, Dr. Nabitsky's uh, book, Hernia Surgery, Current Principles, and the Atlas of Abdominal Wall Reconstruction by Dr. Michael Rosen. Also, for those of you interested in learning more about abdominal wall reconstruction, uh, MedStar Georgetown University Hospital uh, hosts an annual abdominal wall reconstruction summit uh, in this year, it's June of 2021. Uh, and the America's Hernia Society holds an annual meeting. Uh, this year was uh, recently just happened last month uh, in September and was virtual. So overall, I think the overarching goals of abdominal reconstruction are first to recognize the important risk factors for complications and how to optimize prehabilitation for these patients undergoing elective abdominal wall reconstruction. Next is to outline the pros and cons of the various meshes and their indications for use. Also to identify the techniques of different component separation procedures and be aware of technical advances for each. Uh, to identify appropriate soft tissue management techniques, including flap reconstruction, and to outline several adjunctive techniques to help optimize outcomes. Overall, abdominal reconstruction is a reconstructive surgery. It's a restoration of form and function. This makes it ideally suited for plastic surgeons. We know handling of soft tissue. We know that flap dissection, uh, we know about flap dissection and flap surgery. We understand the principles of tissue regeneration and wound healing, and we have a history of innovation. So briefly, I'd like to go over key anatomic points. The skeletal system provides attachment points for soft tissue and muscle. Key landmarks are the xiphoid process, the costal cartilage of the ribs 7 through 10, the floating ribs 11 and 12, L1 to L5 vertebrae, the iliac crest, the ASIS, the pubic tubercle and crest and the pubic symphysis. For uh, the abdominal wall pillars, these bony landmarks provide stable fixation points for hernia repair. Superiorly, we have the costal margin and ribs. Uh, anteriorly, you have the musculofascial linea alba and linea semilunaris. Inferiorly, the inguinal ligament and iliac crest. And posteriorly, the investing lumbar and paraspinal fascia. Uh, a key point about the abdominal wall muscles and the rectus sheath, which is utilized in several methods of abdominal wall reconstruction, is the differentiation of the layers both above and below the arcuate line. Basically, below the arcuate line, the posterior sheath is more deficient and exists uh, in just solely the transversalis fascia. This is important with techniques such as a retrorectus repair, knowing the anatomy in this region. For the vasculature of the abdominal wall, zone one is the mid-abdomen, mainly relying on the deep epigastric arcades, uh, the internal thoracic artery, and the external iliac artery leading to the deep superficial epigastric artery and deep inferior epigastric artery, sorry, deep superior. Zone two in the lower abdomen is based off of branches at the epigastric arcade, uh, the SIEA and SCIA. And then zone three is the flanks and lateral abdomen, mainly supplied by the intercostals, the subcostal, and the lumbar arteries. For innervation, we have sensory innervation via the roots of T7 to L4. A key point is they travel between the internal oblique and transversus abdominis muscles. For motor innervation, you have the intercostal, subcostal, iliohypogastric, and ilioinguinal nerves. Uh, you must preserve these nerves to maintain abdominal wall muscular function and help avoid 
post-repair pain. So to start off with, uh, the Lancet published the STITCH trial in 2015, otherwise known as the small bites versus large bites for closure of abdominal midline incisions, a double-blind, multi-center, randomized controlled trial. This trial randomized 560 patients into a large bite group with zero polypropylene suture, bites placed one centimeter back from the edge and one centimeter apart, and the small bite group, uh, which utilized 2OPDS suture, bites placed 0.5 centimeters back from the edge and 0.5 centimeters apart. Overall, at one year follow-up, the small bites were found to be better, with a 5 to 1 suture to wound length with an overall recurrent incisional hernia rate of 13% with the small bites versus 21% with the large bites. This is sort of visualized as a zipper versus buttons on a shirt that may be too tight with gaping between widely placed buttons. So one of the first concepts we'll talk about is patient optimization or prehabilitation. Ideally, a patient has a BMI of less than 35 or lower. These patients often present higher than this and may benefit from nutritionist consult, a physical therapy consult, potentially a bariatric referral, and for a very complex redo repair, you may have a lower BMI threshold. Nicotine use is crucial, and it's not just cigarette smoking. You need to ask about things such as vapor cigarette use, nicotine patch. Ideally, they're nicotine-free for at least eight weeks with a negative preoperative testing. Diabetic optimization, there are several different thresholds in general listed as hemoglobin A1C less than 7 or less than 7.5 before elective repair. Patients should undergo pulmonary evaluation and PFTs if they have any history of uh, prior lung disease and a very large anticipated repair. You should evaluate any current anticoagulation and optimize this prior to surgery. Always think about utilizing the enhanced recovery after surgery or ARIS protocols and consider adjunctive techniques, which we'll talk about later, such as preoperative chemical denervation or botulinum toxin injection. With standard preoperative evaluation, uh, we're looking at CBC, CMP, PT, PTT, uh, perhaps a chest x-ray and an EKG if they're over 40. And then we need to look at relative contraindications to elective repair. If a patient has significant uh, COPD, can they be weaned from the ventilator post-op? Uh, smokers, we've talked about you know, nicotine cessation, optimizing obesity, uh, evaluating for any liver disease or ascites, uh, identify multiple prior hernia recurrences and try to figure out what may have went wrong so that that's not repeated. Uh, and of course, non-compliant patients. So in 2016, Dr. Henniford's group published the quantification of the effect of diabetes mellitus on ventral hernia repair results of national registries. This was based on the national inpatient sample and the national surgical quality improvement program data. After a multivariate analysis, insulin-dependent or complicated diabetes mellitus patients undergoing open ventral hernia repair had significantly worse outcomes compared with non-insulin dependent and uncomplicated diabetics. This really signaled the need for preoperative optimization of our diabetic patients. For nicotine usage, nicotine has a half-life of two hours, cotinine a half-life of 24 hours. Um, ideally, we look at preoperative serum nicotine concentration 
If it's 30 to 50 or a cotinine, which is a metabolite concentration of 200 to 800 nanograms per milliliter, this indicates the patient is either actively using a tobacco product or on nicotine replacement therapy. In my practice for patients using nicotine, I check them uh, preoperatively, nicotine and cotinine, uh, and especially for patients with a high soft tissue complication risk. Also, you can consider urine cotinine testing the morning of surgery. Dr. Hahn in 2005 wrote about predictors of wound infection and ventral hernia repair. This was based on NISQIP data of 1,505 patients. Overall, there was a 5% wound infection rate. The only modifiable risk factor identified was current smoking. Smoking sensation prior to elective hernia repair may decrease the rate of wound infection and ultimately hernia recurrence. Dr. Kovac wrote about wound risk assessment and ventral hernia repair, generation and internal validation of a risk stratification system using the ACS NISQIP data in 2015. Uh, this was a validated risk model to stratify uh, surgical site occurrences after open ventral hernia repair with 60,187 patients. Overall, there was a 6.2% of incidents of surgical site occurrences. Both patient comorbid conditions and operative factors influence their risk, but specific operative techniques and wound characteristics have a greater impact on the likelihood of SSO. This, again, illustrated the need to compute patient risk factors preoperatively and offer prehabilitation and patient counseling. Next, I'd like to talk about the specifics of some repair techniques. We'll talk about mesh types, plane of mesh insertion, and whether you should consider a component separation or not, and whether this is an anterior component separation or a posterior component separation. So the overall main principles of abdominal wall reconstruction are primary myofascial closure of the abdominal wall, ideally, mesh reinforcement, optimal anatomic positioning of the mesh, careful attention to the soft tissue with an overall goal of restoring physiologic tension of the abdominal wall. In uh, Dr. Vargo's article, The Ventral Hernia Working Group in 2010 was entitled Incisional Ventral Hernias, Review of the Literature and Recommendations Regarding the Grading and Technique of Repair. They identified that at that point, there was no standard nomenclature for ventral hernia. Ventral hernia working group attempted a classification system with a risk of complication or infection. This was a grading system of grade one through grade four based on patient comorbidities and presence of wound contamination. Grade one is considered low risk, low risk of complications, no history of wound infection. Grade two, considered comorbid, includes things such as smoking, obese, diabetic, immunosuppressed, or COPD patients. Grade three, or potentially contaminated, uh, includes previous wound infection, a stoma present, or a violation of the GI tract during surgery. And grade four, or infected classification, includes infected mesh or septic dehiscence. So the ventral hernia working group came up with several main recommendations. The re recommendations of the technique of repair of incisional ventral hernias. A few key things here is that re reinforcement was recommended for repair of all ventral hernia, uh, incisional ventral hernias. Uh, there was a recommendation to centralize and reapproximate rectus muscles when feasible under physiologic tension. 
a recommendation to reduce bio burden prior to repair, uh, a recommendation about the location of mesh placement, underlay versus overlay, and then in the setting of gross and controlled contamination, a recommendation that is it appropriate sometimes to consider a delayed repair. They also made recommendations for choice of repair material by grade. For grade one, the choice is by surgeon preference and patient factors. For grade two, indicating an increased risk for a surgical site occurrence, suggests an additive risk of permanent synthetic repair material and a potential advantage for appropriate biologic reinforcement. Grade three, a permanent synthetic repair material is generally not recommended with the contamination. There's a potential advantage to biologic repair. And grade four, a permanent synthetic repair material is not recommended for these contaminated cases, and a biologic repair material should be considered. So again, about mesh types. Uh, there are many different types of permanent message, most, most common polypropylene, polyethylene, uh, polyester, and EPTFE. There are synthetic degradable or bioresorbable meshes. And there's also biologic xenografts or biological mesh materials, which are um, xenogenic or allogenic. In addition, several of these meshes have anti-adhesion coatings consisting of hyaluronic acid or carboxymethylcellulose or collagen uh, or other degradable materials. In general, key characteristics of the different mesh types to consider are the pore size, the filament size, and the density, generally considered low, moderate, or heavyweight density. Many of these meshes are modern meshes woven on looms. For mesh, we often consider the five Rs, which are the right mesh, patient, plane, reason, and time. Synthetic mesh is considered the gold standard and in general, recurrence is the same or lower with synthetic mesh. Explantation is the same or higher with synthetic mesh. SSO and SSI are variable depending on the study, and there are in general worse outcomes with synthetic meshes with increasing contamination levels. Biosynthetic or synthetic bioabsorbable meshes uh, include uh, different materials, uh, including PGA, TMC, which absorbs over six months, and the mesh is replaced with collagen as it resorbs. There's a second mesh made of uh, glycolide, lactide, and trimethylcarbonate, which resorbs over six to 36 months, and a poly-4-hydroxybutyrate mesh, which resorbs over 12 to 18 months. Uh, in general, the thought is that these meshes allow tissue remodeling and building of collagen and breaking strength while the mesh resorbs. There is a potential use for these in contaminated fields, and they're often somewhat cheaper than the biologic xenografts. Dr. Fisher wrote about when the mesh goes away, an analysis of poly-4-hydroxybutyrate mesh for complex hernia repair in Plastic Reconstructive Surgery Global Open in 2019. This was a retrospective review of 70 consecutive ventral hernia repairs with P4-HBM mesh. The average BMI was 33, the average age 58. Cases were primarily the ventral hernia working group class two, and the average defect size was 323 centimeters squared. The PH, uh, P4HMB mesh was placed in the retromuscular 80% of the time plane or the onlay 20% of the time, and follow-up was 24 months. The hernia recurrence rate was 
5.7% and occurred an average of 285 days post-repair. These patients reported a significant improvement in quality of life, and this study helped to support the use of biosynthetic meshes as an effective biomaterial for complex ventral hernia repair. For the xenografts or the biologic materials for acellular dermal matrix, Dr. Butler in 2017 in JAX wrote about long-term outcomes after abdominal reconstruction with acellular dermal matrix. This analyzed 512 ADM reconstructions with a mean follow-up of 4.4 years. Half of the cases were clean contaminated to contaminated. Overall recurrence rate was found to be 9.4%, SSO rate of 25.1, and SSI of 8.4 for this cohort of very complex abdominal reconstructions. Next, I'd like to talk about the placement of the mesh in the different mesh anatomic planes. First, with onlay mesh, this is placement of the mesh superficial to the rectus muscle and external oblique aponeurosis. The mesh avoids contact with the viscera. However, there's a large subcutaneous dissection with a significant dead space and skin devascularization. There is a mesh contamination risk with a soft tissue infection and with the onlay technique, there's little ability to offload fascial tension. A bridging inlay mesh or an interposition mesh is where the mesh edges are sutured to the medial fascial edges without midline fascial reapproximation. This leads to the porous outcomes, and there's a role here in potential temporary or stage closures. However, there's a seven times recurrence rate and a two times complication rate without midline primary fascial reapproximation. An inlay or a sublay or a retrorectus mesh placement is a mesh between the posterior rectus sheath and the rectus muscle, uh, classically described by the rebus stopa technique. This plane insulates the mesh from the intraperitoneal contents, decreases adhesions, and improves your vascularization of the mesh due to the broad muscle interface with the mesh. For those of you on video, I'm showing a diagram here of the dissection of the retrorectus plane. And basically there's an incision of the posterior rectus sheath near the midline with a very careful dissection of the posterior rectus sheath off the rectus muscle uh, back out to the linea semilunaris. This retromuscular space is dissected. And then before completing the repair uh, and placement of the mesh, the posterior rectus sheath should be reapproximated. The retrorectus space is often referred to as the privileged space uh, with the lowest risk of hernia recurrence. Dr. Bisgard wrote in the Journal American College of Surgeons in 2013, a nationwide prospective study of outcomes after elective incisional hernia repair. This was a national prospective study of 2007 to 2010 and assessed uh, reoperation, readmission, recurrence, and mortality. There were 3,258 her hernias with a 21-month follow-up. They found that the sublay position or retrorectus position offered the lowest risk of long-term reoperation of 16% versus 21 as compared to onlay and intraperitoneal mesh. One thing that I think we should talk about is it, should we be using prophylactic mesh reinforcement at the time of primary laparotomy? There's actually 17 randomized controlled trials that have studied this. 
again, prophylactic mesh placement at the time of laparotomy closure. Mainly this was rectorectus or onlay. Most commonly polypropylene mesh was used. And many of these studies show a significant prevention of hernia occurrence rate. However, the logistics of no uh, definable CPT code, uh, the logistics of coordinating two surgeon teams and reimbursement questions may plague the wide uh, application of this technique. Dr. Fisher wrote about in PRS in 2018, comparative effectiveness of retromuscular and intraperitoneal repair. Uh, what is the role for posterior sheath reconstruction? This evaluated 179 patients with retromuscular mesh placement uh, with repaired posterior sheath defects. Retromuscular repair with an intact posterior sheath versus an intraperitoneal repair was studied. Primary outcomes included recurrence, surgical site occurrences, and cost. Repaired Posterior sheath repairs have equivalent outcomes to traditional retromuscular repair and superior outcomes compared to intraperitoneal repair. What does this mean? Oftentimes the rectus sheath is fragile or may have had um, several areas where it was unable to be brought primarily together. You should consider reinforcing this with something like an absorbable mesh to complete the posterior sheath repair and still place your mesh in the retrorectus plane. So a few brief words about suture failure. Suture failure can be when the suture breaks. There can be not failure. There can be suture cutting through the mesh and there can be suture cutting through tissue or cheese wiring. Uh, Dr. Domanian's group with Dr. Stock as the senior author in PRS Global Open 2016 wrote about mesh sutured repairs of abdominal wall defects. This was a, at the time, a newly described technique with strips of mid-weight macroporous polypropylene mesh, two centimeters in width, passed through the abdominal wall and tied as simple interrupted sutures. They looked at 107 patients with a mean hernia defect of 9.1 centimeters. 49 were clean, contaminated, contaminated, or dirty. Uh, the mean follow-up was 234 days, and there were four recurrent hernias. The concept here is potentially distributing tension over a larger surface area and the bioincorporation of the suture into the abdominal wall tissue. For those of you on video, there's a diagram of the technique with these mesh suture strips and uh, shows them there tied in the midline. And um, there's a video here that I'm showing of the technique that shows using a suture passer to pass the mesh through the uh, midline fascial, uh, uh, at, the, at the midline of the fascia, uh, placing them and then tying them at the end. So classically, when we talk about component separation, the classic described technique is the anterior component separation, written about by Dr. Ramirez in 1990. Uh, this is to transect the external oblique aponeurosis approximately two centimeters lateral to the rectus sheath, elevate the external oblique off the internal oblique to the anterior axillary line. This involves a musculofascial advancement to the midline. If more length is needed, the posterior rectus sheath can be incised and potentially elevated off the rectus muscle to lengthen that component. With this technique, he described a recurrence rate of 8%, and the largest defect he closed was 25 by 35 centimeters, or 875 centimeters squared. With the anterior component separation technique, the rectus muscle internal oblique and transversalis unit can be advanced 6 centimeters per side in the epigastrium, 
10 centimeters at the umbilicus, and five centimeters in the suprapubic region in the most ideal circumstance. This leads to a bilateral flap advancement of 10, 20, and um, 10 centimeters. I'm sorry, 12, 20, and 10 centimeters with bilateral flap advancement. You should consider reinforcement of this repair with a mesh or biologic material. With an anterior component separation, a classic technique, this develops large subcutaneous flaps. The skin perforators are divided. Um, you can incise the posterior sheath for more advancement. And again, the key points is that there's a significant dead space created and potential devascularization of the skin and subcutaneous tissue. Other key techniques are to release the entire length of the external oblique fascia and elevate the entire external oblique off of the internal oblique to the anterior axillary line. This picture shows a completed anterior component separation. Uh, you can see here the significant subcutaneous dissection required uh, and the large dead space that is created. However, this does afford a very significant advancement of the fascia to the midline. Uh, this is a schematic here of the different types of uh, the different component separations described by various authors in the late 90s and 2000s. Uh, there are actually many different ways to incise the myofascial component and do the release. Uh, the most common is the anterior classic component separation release. Dr. Butler and Dr. Campbell in 2011 at PRS wrote about minimally invasive component separation with inlay bioprosthetic mesh for abdominal wall re reconstruction or MICSIB. This was 38 cancer patients with abdominal wall reconstruction who were at high risk for wound complications. This technique delineated perforator preservation. The semilunar line was accessed through three centimeter wide tunnels, which reduces the subcutaneous dead space and helped preserve the vascularity of the overlying skin. These repairs were reinforced with a mesh. This diagram shows this technique with basically the creation of these subcutaneous tunnels for releasing of the external oblique aponeurosis and the significant preservation of the midline perforators. With this technique, the rectus complexes are medialized. The bioprosthetic mesh was sutured in place in the preperitoneal plane. Uh, they utilized quilting sutures and liberal use of drains. And again, the perforators were preserved and the dead space was minimized. Dr. Butler's group in 2012 followed this up with a minimally invasive component separation results in fewer wound healing complications than open component separation for large ventral hernia repairs. This was a retrospective single center review of 57 patients undergoing the minimally invasive technique as compared with 50 patients undergoing open component separation. The minimally invasive technique resulted in fewer wound healing complications than did open component separation used for complex abdominal wall reconstructions. There was a preservation of median skin vascularity and a reduction in subcutaneous dead space with the minimally invasive technique. So a few words about the classic Rivas Stopa technique, which is a retromuscular a sub, a sublay dissection for mesh placement. Again, incising the rectus sheath, uh, the posterior rectus sheath, just lateral to the midline, and dissection laterally to the neurovasculature. This allows a sublay of mesh into the rectorectus plane. 
Dr. Fisher wrote about retromuscular sublay technique for ventral hernia repair in 2018. Uh, and for those of you on video, you can see the dissection technique here. This can be a somewhat of a challenging learning curve to identify this technique. And below the arc wit line, the rectus sheath can be somewhat fragile. Um, this shows uh, the technique they utilized. And again, uh, at the lateral aspect, washing out for the neurovascular bundles. So then with posterior component separation, commonly referred to as a transversus abdominis release or a TAR repair. This is an extension of the retrorectus plane laterally. The dissection proceeds laterally to the pretransversalis or preperitoneal plane. This helps to preserve blood supply and innervation of the abdominal wall and allows myofascial advancement of the anterior abdominal wall. This uh, affords a closure of the posterior sheath in the midline and mesh is then placed in this retrorectus or extended into the tar plane. With the tar technique, this avoids the skin devascularization seen in anterior component separation. Also, with cautious use of the technique, prevents injury to the neurovascular neurovasculature during dissection. And you need to be aware of careful suture placement to avoid the neurovasculature. This can help to decrease postoperative pain and to decrease the risk of denervation. So with recurrent hernias, patients report a significant disruption in their quality of life and a significant increase in their degree of disability. The abdominal Q or AHQ score was a, is ventral hernia reported specific patient outcomes. In general, you need to try to fix what went wrong the first time. Uh, generally, you obtain their prior operative notes, uh, do a careful assessment of their incisions or prior CT scans. But all in all, we need to adhere to the same principles, which are primary myofascial closure of the abdominal wall, <clears throat> mesh reinforcement, optimal anatomic position of the mesh, careful attention to the soft tissue, and restoring physiologic tension of the abdominal wall. So a few words about the soft tissue. The need for soft tissue coverage and abdominal wall reconstruction indicates a loss of soft tissue beyond the availability of local tissue to be recruited to cover the defect. Truncal redundant tissue can close most defects. These large defects are a complex subset of defects, including oncologic resection, traumatic injury, skin necrosis or soft tissue infection, and radiation-associated soft tissue injury. Dr. Liang's group wrote about adverse events after ventral hernia repair, the vicious cycle of complications in 2015 in JAX. This was a retrospective study of 794 patients with a 140-month follow-up. With each ventral hernia repair failure, subsequent ventral hernia repair becomes more complicated and more morbid, otherwise known as the spin cycle of hernia recurrence, leading to reoperation, leading to ventral hernia repair, leading to hernia recurrence. Significant predictors of recurrence were presence of an SSI, elevated BMI, prior repair, and use of synthetic mesh. A key point here is to help pay attention to the soft tissue to help decrease hernia recurrence. Dr. Carbonell and Dr. Cobb's group in 2015 in Jacks wrote about open retromuscular mesh repair of complex incisional hernia, predictors of wound events and recurrence. 
This studied 255 retromuscular mesh repairs of midline incisional defects. They found the only significant predictor of hernia recurrence was the presence of an SSI. Previous mesh infections and recurrent repairs increase the likelihood of an SSI, which in itself increases the risk of recurrence. So a few words about different soft tissue flaps. Flaps allow single stage closure of complex defects at the same time as hernia repair. This obviates the need for a second surgery, decreases inflammatory chronic wound response, and offers potential better integration of bioprosthetic meshes that are used for the hernia repair. Dr. Rourke in 2000 in PRS wrote about the upper, middle, and lower thirds of the abdominal wall as a general guideline for usage of which flaps in which region. We're gonna go over this in more detail here in the next few slides. So you need to plan your incision carefully. Many of these patients present with large hernia defects prior uh, multiple incisions with the ideal goal of preserving vascularity while exposing enough of the myofascia needed for an adequate repair. Tension must be limited at wound closure and both the defect and the donor site. Inappropriately high tension upon closure will lead to flap necrosis. You need to be prepared to skin graft the donor site if necessary. Flaps utilize fasciocutaneous uh, flaps for skin and subcutaneous coverage. They allow reconstruction of abdominal myofascial tissue with adjacent abdominal myofascial tissue or mesh or biologics. And in general, you need to try to avoid utilizing the fascia of a regional or free fasciocutaneous flap for the abdominal fascia reconstruction. This will place the flap under tension, increase risk of flap loss, and the fascia from a harvested flap is often deinnervated and will not contribute to the desired strength and longevity of the abdominal wall. The key point here is to consider using skin flaps or skin advancement for skin reconstruction and abdominal fascia or mesh for the abdominal fascia reconstruction. So a few different types of flaps, the keystone flap, um, originally uh, described and then written about by Moncrief in, uh, originally described by Bayset and written about by Moncrief in uh, the Lancet Oncology Journal, involves fasciocutaneous perforators from a broad-based flap involving a VY advancement component at the ends and a central advancement in the midline. I'm showing here a case example from Dr. Curry, the Keystone Island flap use in large defects of the trunk and extremities in soft tissue reconstruction in PRS in 2011. This case, for those of you on video, demonstrates the utility of large keystone flaps with reconstruction of large truncal defects. Again, utilizing the central advancement, the wide fasciocutaneous perforator base, and the uh, bilateral VY advancement at the poles. Uh, one thing to never forget in a salvage situation is bipedicled flaps. Uh, advanced to the midline with secondary skin grafting of the wound at the edges. Not commonly utilized, but needs to be potentially in your armamentarium. And then more frequently, we're gonna talk about the regional flaps used for abdominal wall reconstruction. Generally, these are from the back, the chest, the groin, or the thighs. And these pedicle flaps are based on a dominant axial blood supply. As always, we need to consider the specific donor site morbidity with each flap selected. 
The latissimus dorsi flap, a workhorse in plastic surgery, as we're all very familiar, uh, can be up to a 25 by 35 centimeter flap size based on the thoracodorsal vessels. It is best for large lateral wall defects of the upper third of the abdomen. The anterior lateral thigh flap or ALT flap can offer up to a 20 by 20 centimeter skin and fascial paddle. However, for primary closure, generally the maximum width is eight centimeters. This offers minimal donor site morbidity being a fasciocutaneous flap and is based on the descending branch, the lateral femoral circumflex artery. This case from Dr. Beneshu entitled groin reconstruction using a pedicled anterior lateral thigh flap in 2016 illustrates the usage of coverage of a very large groin defect with a single stage pedicled ALT flap and primary closure of the thigh defect. The rectus abdominis flap, another plastic surgery workforce can be up to 25 by six centimeters uh, with or without a skin paddle, which could be extended skin paddle with the oblique technique. In general, the skin paddle is transverse or vertical though. This can be uh, to reconstruct upper or lower quadrant defects or suprapubic and umbilical defects, uh, often based on the DSEA or DIEA. The tensor fascia lotter or TFL flap includes the TFL muscle and fascia, uh, has up to a 10 by 25 centimeter skin paddle based on the lateral femoral circumflex artery and can be useful for umbilical, suprapubic and lower quadrant defects. The rectus femoris flap, is based on an eight by 20 centimeter muscle size and up to a 20 by 12 centimeter skin panel, again, based on the lateral femoral circumflex system, most useful for lower quadrant umbilical, suprapubic and groin defects. A key thing here with the donor site is that you may lose terminal 20% of knee extension. And to help minimize this, you would like to consider recentralization of the vastus medialis and lateralis tendons above the knee. The gracilis flap, is uh, up to a six by 24 centimeter flap size, can have an extended skin paddle of 16 by 18 based on the ascending branch, the medial femoral circumflex artery. This flap is most useful for smaller defects of the lower third. Uh, the distal perforators lead to an unreliable distal skin island uh, and is best used for groin or perineal defects. The vastus lateralis flap has up to a 10 by 26, 26 centimeter flap size. It's based on the descending branch of the lateral circumflex femoral artery and is best used for lower third defects. Uh, this case from Dr. Lita is a dynamic reconstruction of full thickness abdominal wall defects using a free innervated vastus lateralis flap combined with a free ALT flap from 2013. This helps uh, illustrate with a DFSP tumor the utility of the combination of multiple flaps for very large defects. And then lastly, with flap reconstruction, there's always the consideration for free tissue transfer. This is for very large soft tissue defects where local or regional flaps are not an option. The main donor sites are the thighs and torso. The recipient blood vessels are key. In general, this is the internal mammary or epigastric system. You may need vein grafts to extend the reach of the pedicles and the challenge is in the mid abdomen. So a few words about different adjunctive techniques. First with tissue expanders. Tissue expanders allow creation of extended soft tissue and extended musculofascial tissue. These may be useful for patients with severe soft tissue shortage. The most common placement is lateral to the defect. 
And a key point is this does require a two-stage technique with an average of three to six months between stages. This slide here shows the different tissue expanders that can be utilized. Uh, there's remote and integrated port, there's rectangular, crescent, round expanders, there's many options. In general, with tissue expansion, the epidermis thickens due to hyperkeratosis and the dermis thins 30 to 50%. The muscle has decreased thickness, however, unchanged strength. With the stage expansion technique, the flaps have increased vascularity, leading to potential increased flap survival. Uh, Dr. Tober and Polynice wrote about repair of recurrent ventral hernias using tissue expansion and porcine acellular matrix. Uh, this schematic shows the placement of the tissue expanders bilaterally, lateral to the defect, just deep to the external oblique layer for expansion of both the skin and musculofascial layers. Uh, Dr. Wooten's group in 2017 uh, wrote an article entitled The Role of Tissue Expansion and Abdominal Reconstruction, a Systemic, Systematic Evidence-Based Review. And in general here, they talk about the different complications seen in stage one or placement of the tissue expansion, tissue expanders, and versus stage two uh, with removal of the expanders and repair of the hernia. The most important things are here with the stage one complications. The most common thing seen was infection, rupture, extrusion of the expander, hematoma, and other wound breakdown complications. And with stage two, it was hernia recurrence. Follow-up study um, with the combined submuscular tissue expansion and anterior component separation technique for abdominal reconstruction was a long-term outcome analysis. They looked at 12 patients that underwent this two-stage technique with an average fascial defect of 17 by 21.5 centimeters and an average 40-week follow-up with an 8.3% hernia recurrence. Uh, these uh, diagrams show, again, a very similar technique with placement of bilateral tissue expanders underneath the external oblique layer, expanding both that external oblique myofascial layer and the skin for a large defect with a very complex scarred midline wound. And Dr. Kantz's algorithm in 2017 in hernia, I think is a very useful way to help categorize the thinking of hernia reconstruction. With a small defect in the presence of abdominal laxity, uh, you can consider adjacent tissue transfer. Uh, an inferior defect, consider an abdominal plasty closure technique. A central defect with a longitudinal excision, consider wide undermining. With a relatively large soft tissue defect, consider tissue expansion or flap reconstruction. With an elective case and no contamination, consider tissue expansion. And with contamination present, consider a flap reconstruction. And then with hypogastric or perimbilical defects, consider thigh-based pedicle flaps. And with epigastric defects, these are the cases where oftentimes a microsurgical free flap is, is needed. So a few uh, key techniques are the consideration of preservation of perforators whenever possible. The blood supply to the abdominal wall skin and subcutaneous tissue is primarily from vascular perforators from the deep inferior and superior epigastric vessels. A large proportion of these perforators are concentrated within three centimeters of the umbilicus. So this is a key area to consider identification and preservation of perforators during your dissection. Also, another adjunctive technique is consideration for the usage of progressive tension sutures. Uh, there are 11 randomized controlled trials uh, comprising 793 patients, which analyze the use of quilting and progressive tension sutures. 10 of the 11 studies found a significant reduction in seroma formation of 27% versus 44.3. 
And then a few words about soft tissue excess and when to utilize paniculectomy. Large complex hernias act as tissue expanders for the subcutaneous tissues and fat, oftentimes poor quality atrophic tissue with poor blood supply and significant lymphedema. The redundant skin creates a lateralized distracting force on the incision, and the panis itself increases the risk of dehiscence, necrosis, infection, and hernia recurrence. Dr. Fisher in 2017 wrote about concurrent paniculectomy in the obese ventral hernia patient, assessment of complications, hernia recurrence, and healthcare utilization. This is a retrospective cohort study of uh, 1,013 VHR PAN or ventral hernia with paniculectomy patients and 18,323 ventral hernia repair only patients. Concurrent paniculectomy in the obese ventral hernia group had higher early complications, higher cost, and length of stay. However, at a two-year analysis, there was a significantly reduced recurrence rate of hernia of 7.9% versus 11.3%. Um, this shows here the uh, increase in initial readmissions and then the decrease in, initial, uh, in hernia recurrence. Uh, Dr. Butler's group wrote about concomitant paniculectomy affecting wound morbidity, but not hernia recurrence rates and abdominal reconstruction and PRS in 2017. Looked at 548 patients with abdominal reconstruction alone or abdominal wall reconstruction with paniculectomy. Complication rates were 38.3% with the paniculectomy and 29.2% with abdominal wall reconstruction alone. Uh, with the paniculectomy group, there was a higher incidence of fat necrosis, skin dehiscence, and infection. Uh, and a higher wound morbidity. However, there were similar surgical site occurrence and hernia recurrence rates at long-term follow-up. So when should we consider paniculectomy with hernia repair? Uh, there is again a higher wound complication rate and a trend towards higher SSOs, however, a trend towards decrease in recurrence rates with the combined technique. So there's a need to optimize these patients and educate them thoroughly prior to surgery. Uh, in uh, Dr. Espinoza de la Montero in 2016, wrote about total abdominal wall reconstruction with component separation, reinforcement, and abdominoplasty in patients with complex ventral hernias. He looked at 58 patients who underwent a vertical abdominoplasty at the time of total abdominal wall reconstruction with component separation and intra-abdominal reinforcement. A local wound complication rate of 24% was seen, however, lower with the perforator preserving technique and a higher morbidity with the presence of contamination and a low preoperative albumin. Uh, this shows a patient from his study with a very significant midline um, uh, ventral hernia with the vertical paniculectomy closure. Also, with transverse and vertical laxity, you should consider a fleur de paniculectomy. Uh, this addresses both uh, directions of laxity and all fleur de techniques are generally prone to wound breakdown at the T. Uh, Dr. Butler writes about a Mercedes perniculectomy technique, uh, which essentially allows the midline T to be brought more cephalad. This takes the incision out of the infrapanous crease and shortens the length of the flaps leading to less midline T wound complications. Also always consider in the most contaminated or sickest of patients to consider a delayed primary closure to allow an intervening time of wound management to optimize the wound prior to closure. 
And then another adjunctive technique is the preoperative use of botulinum toxin A for chemical denervation. The general mechanisms are decreased pain, lengthening of the myofascial units to allow midline closure, and offloading of the repair postoperatively. There are multiple protocols, generally varying from 200 to 500 units. There are varied sites and numbers of injection per side, and they're typically performed with ultrasound guidance. Overall, these studies show a 4.7 to 5 centimeter increase in myofascial length on preoperative CT scan after injection. So we may be able to leverage abdominal wall in complex patients to help accomplish midline closure with appropriate tension with the use of this technique. Dr. Ibrahim in 2016 wrote about preoperative abdominal wall, uh, abdominal muscle elongation with botulinum toxin A for complex incisional ventral hernia repair. This was a pilot study that measured the effects of preoperative BTA prior to elective repair of recurrent abdominal hernias. They used a total dose of 300 units of Botox, injected it into the external oblique, internal oblique, and transversus abdominis muscles at three sites on each side two weeks prior to surgery. They were able to look at pre and post BTA abdominal wall CT images and showed a mean gain in abdominal wall length after the injections was four centimeters per side. Dr. Henniford uh, followed this with a chemical component separation study, concepts, evidence, and outcomes. It was a literature review of 22 articles using preoperative BTA prior to VHR with a goal of altering the abdominal wall length or form to achieve a tension-free primary fascial repair. Treatment regimens were not standardized, again, varying from 300 to 500 units or three to five sites per laterality. The post-injection CT scans generally showed elongation and thinning of the abdominal wall muscles with the decreased mean defect size and hernia size. They found that primary fascial closure for these large defects was generally achievable with subsequent abdominal wall reconstruction. There may be a benefit of decreased postoperative pain, and there were no adverse events reported with this technique. So preoperative BTA injection is a promising adjunct to abdominal wall reconstruction, creating abdominal wall laxity and helping to enable primary fascial repair with very large complex defects. Dr. Ibrahim in 2020 in the Hernia Journal uh, wrote about selective muscle botulinum toxin A, component paralysis and complex frontal hernia repair. Uh, he utilized 200 units of BTA, two to four weeks preoperative to um, the external oblique and internal oblique muscles. Uh, the BTA was felt to counteract the chronic muscle retraction observed in large ventral hernia. And this, for those of you on video, shows their injection technique and their pre and post operative CT scans. Another adjunctive technique to consider is the use of incisional negative pressure wound therapy. In Dr. Singh's study in 2013 in the Annals of Plastic Surgery, incisional negative pressure wound therapy versus conventional dressings following abdominal wall reconstruction, a comparative study. They looked at 23 patients with negative pressure wound therapy and 33 with standard gauze dressings. The wound complications were 22% versus 63.6% decreased with usage of negative pressure wound therapy. Also, the skin dehiscence was seen to be 9% versus 39%. Uh, so this is a technique to consider. There are commercial devices for incisional reinforcement. You can also consider creating your own with a non-adherent layer over the incision and then standard uh, foam dressings with the adhesive drapes to help decrease wound tension, increase vascularity, and potentially decrease dead space in seroma.
So again, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to talk to you today. Hopefully, we've well-reviewed the concepts of abdominal reconstruction. Again, I'm Dr. Abigail Chaffin. I'm a plastic surgeon at Tulane University. And I'd like to offer thanks to Dr. Morgan Martin, a plastic surgery fellow at Emory University, for um, starting this very innovative um, podcast series, which I think will serve to be very educational. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you so much, Dr. Chaffin. So um, first, thank you so much for giving us this very thorough and very evidence-based overview of abdominal wall reconstruction. I do have a few questions for you. Mm -hmm. um, first, that last bit about um, the incisional wound vac. So that data, that's pretty incredible. Are you using this with your abdominal wall reconstruction? You know, uh, I do. And I also do a lot of complex wound reconstruction in my practice. And I have found... Uh, you know, anecdotally, significantly decreased seroma rates, uh, increased uh, incision vascularity with decreased wound dehiscence complications. Um, again, there are commercial uh, devices that are very easy to apply, but also it's not difficult to use a non-adherent silicone layer uh, and cutting your own uh, sponge uh, over the flap and the repair uh, for bolstering after surgery. Great. Um, and then another question about which technique do you prefer, the anterior or the posterior component separation, or does it kind of depend on the patient? You know, I think it depends on the patient. I think uh, for the very complex and contaminated defects, I'm often using an anterior technique and attempting to preserve perforators. Uh, for me, there seems to be more flexibility in that. Uh, I think ideally, you should always consider the rectorectus plane for your mesh reinforcement. And if you're there and it's feasible to accomplish a posterior separation technique or a transversus abdominis repair, this can be a very nice technique. We see many patients with recurrent hernias who've already had one or the other. And the question always comes up, do you try to you know, re-release the prior repair? or go with another technique, you have to be cautious doing a full anterior component separation followed by a full posterior to potentially significantly decrease the strength of the abdominal wall. Sure. Um, and then one last question. Um, you mentioned reducing the bio burden as was recommended by the ventral hernia working group. Mm -hmm. So is anyone doing anything more to decolonize patients such as like an intranasal mucuricin or anything like that other than just like preoperative antibiotics that you know of? Um, I think, you know, in our practice, you know, preoperative MRSA testing and uh, decolonization with bupiracin, I oftentimes recommend the patient uh, use a, a chlorhexidine or a hippocleanse head to toe shower, uh, you know, the week before surgery and especially the night before surgery head to toe. Um, consideration for your preparation technique, whether it be betadine or chlorhexidine or alcohol, then chlorhexidine. Uh, these are all things to consider for decolonization. If the patients had prior uh, wound complications or prior infection, I think it's important to look at the organisms involved in that repair, such as if it were MRSA, maybe consider adjusting your preoperative antibiotics to an appropriate agent for MRSA due to their prior history. Yeah, really good point. Um, so thank you so much. And uh, this was very educational for me. And I'm definitely going to take all these points into consideration with all the future hernia repairs that I'm involved with. So thank you very much and we'll see you later. Thank you. Thank you for supporting this podcast. If you have questions or advice, feel free to reach out to us via social media. Follow us for more educational content, including 
the recorded episodes with visual supplements. You can find these on Instagram at The Loop Podcast or our YouTube channel, The Loop Podcast, or our website, theloopodcast.buzzsprout.com. Thank you for your support, and we will see you next time.